This is Dave, and I'm here with Ethan, and together we are Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al Podcast, episode 140-inch. On this week's episode, we interview Doug Haverty, the art director for many of Weird Al's albums. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al Podcast. It's a podcast about Weird Al. It's Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al Podcast. Seriously, the whole podcast is about Weird Al. Dave and Ethan's you don't have to listen, but we're glad you are. Three, two, one. Happy New Year, Ethan. Wow, Happy New Year, Dave. Well, hey, I haven't talked to you since last year. <laughs> How was your new year? Oh, it was great. I got to see Weird Al. Wait, what? How did you see Weird Al? Oh, I was watching TV, and he showed up on Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve with Ryan Seacrest in a quick flashback clip. Wow! Was it a time travel thing, or was it, like, just a clip they played? It was just a clip. It was like a blink-and-you-missed-it moment. Ah, okay. Well, I'm glad you didn't blink. Yeah, well, this year it marked the TV show's 50th anniversary, and they were showing clips from previous years, and I knew Weird Al performed way back on the 25th anniversary, the 1996 through 1997 edition, so I was hoping they would show him, and they did. I mean, before the 50th anniversary, 25th is like the next biggest one, so that's that's quite an honor. I didn't realize that Al was on the 25th anniversary. Yeah, I guess they didn't want to hold him for another two years to do the 27th anniversary. Ah, what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually remember watching this live when it happened, you know, back when Dick Clark was still hosting and it was still called Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. Dave, do you think that eventually when Ryan Seacrest dies or leaves the show, will it be called like Dick Clark's Ryan Seacrest's and then the new hosts <laughs> New Year's Rockin' Eve? <laughs> Yes, it'll be called Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve with Ryan Seacrest with Dave and Ethan. Yes, I forgot that we will <laughs> post that one day. <laughs> okay, so you were watching back in 96, 97. Was it just Weird Al performing? No, actually, there were a bunch of performances. I know Kiss performed, and there was another band called Presidents of the United States of America. Maybe you've heard of them? Hmm. Anyway, were you watching live back on New Year's Eve in 1996, Ethan? If I was, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea, (laughs) Dave. I was six years old. (laughs) Anyway, I remember watching it live, and I remember seeing Weird Al perform two songs, Amish Paradise and Gump. And the second one, Gump, was kind of fun because the presidents of the United States of America were there in the audience, and they got to watch it. How awesome. Yeah, it was kind of funny because the President of the United States, they went to them to get their reaction. And at first they did this, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like this look, which was obviously (laughs) staged. And then later on, they cut to them again in the audience. So they were dancing and doing high kicks and stuff. They were really having a good time. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wait, does that mean the ball's dropping again? No, that noise means that we have a message on the 347 Spatula Hotline, the official hotline of Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast. Oh boy, alright, it's time for our intern Frank to play the message. Hi, Dave and Ethan, this is Lee Sykes, a.k.a. Eclectic League. I've been an Al fan since Edith, and my lame claim to fame is getting Bermuda to link to my site, Great Weird Al Words Count, from WeirdAl.com. It's always driven me crazy how, at a casual listen, there's no difference between the original mix of Christmas at Ground Zero from Polka Party and the alternate mix from Headline News, but it hasn't driven me crazy enough to sit down and figure it out. Until now, I figured the answer was out there. I just hadn't bothered to look. But now if Dave and Ethan don't know, this must be addressed. So, after repeated listens, I figured out that, first of all, There is no air raid siren in the background during the instrumental section in the middle of the alternate mix, but it is there in the original. Second, the glockenspiel, which you hear mainly during the instrumental in the middle and the jingle bells bit at the end, is on the left in the original mix, but centered in the alternate mix. And, of course, there seem to be other minor mixing differences, but uh, those are the most noticeable ones I found. So, I hope that helps. 
I look forward to listening to more podcasts. Thank you. Bye. Wow, Lee. Thank you so much for the call and for doing that amazing work to help us figure out once and for all what the difference was between Christmas at Ground Zero and Christmas at Ground Zero alternate mix. And you know, Lee wasn't the only one to alert us that there were differences between the two versions. Our friend and the comedy music historian, Jeff Morris, sent us a whole list of differences that he found. Now, some of these are similar to what Lee found, and some of these go even further. So, Dave, how about we just read through what Jeff sent us? Sure. So the first thing that Jeff noticed is that the bells in the intro on the alternate mix get louder in the left channel as the intro progresses and are generally more pronounced in that mix, while in the standard mix, they stay the same volume and don't overpower the sleigh bells as they do in the alternate mix. He goes on to say the woodblock TikTok sound seems to get louder in the alternate mix at the end of the intro and has echo, while in the standard mix, it stays the same volume and is relatively without effects. The intro bomb descending is centered in the alternate mix, while at the end of the intro in the standard mix, another descending sound comes in from the left channel. The explosion after the intro is in stereo on the alternate mix, while it's in mono on the standard mix. And also the drums are louder in the left channel in the standard mix, while they're centered in the alternate mix. Al's vocal is a slightly different recording for the lyrics, in the crowd, we can dodge debris while we trim the tree underneath, while the rest of the vocal is the same take as the original version. The standard mix has an air raid siren in the solo section, while the alternate mix either doesn't have it or it's completely buried. The bells or xylophone in the solo in the standard mix are almost unnoticeable in the alternate mix. And finally, the siren goes on a bit longer at the end of the alternate mix. Well, we want to give a big thank you to Jeff Morris for sending through his analysis. We want to thank Lee for sending through his analysis. And Dave, I think at the end of the day, what does all this prove? At the end of the day, this just proves that they're pretty much the same version. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> now, if you want some more information and you want to check out Jeff Morris's website and this list that he compiled, head over to dmdb.org and you can just search for Christmas at Ground Zero to check the full list out. And now it is time for This Week in Weird Al Related News. SF Sketchfest, the San Francisco Comedy Festival, scheduled to take place later this month, has been postponed. Weird Al was scheduled to take part in the Let's Make a Poop with Triumph the Insult Comic Dog event, along with Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings on this coming Friday, January 7th. No news yet on when the festival or Weird Al's event will be rescheduled, but the festival organizers ask that you please be patient while they figure out the new dates, details, and options, and all that. So to keep up on the latest news on the festival, be sure to visit sfsketchfest2022.sched.com. Weird Al friend and collaborator Patton Oswald has launched a podcast. Gotta pass! Ethan, that's a little insulting. I'm sorry. I must politely pass. Ah, much better. Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al podcast are proud to announce that we have added a brand new, incredible, pretty stinking majestic item to our official merchandise shop over at shop.2000inch.com. For only $20, you now have a great way to not only support the podcast, but to show how you really feel about our intern Frank with our We Hate Intern Frank t-shirt. Now, this great design is a parody of one of those no smoking signs, except instead of a cigarette underneath the slash, it says Intern Frank. Be sure to order your We Hate Intern Frank shirt before Weird Al's upcoming tour to let everyone know how you feel about our horrible intern. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Vegan Burrito Restaurant, Burrito Burrito in Troy, New York. Home the two-pound double-wrapped in a quesadilla, Burrito Burrito, and Wizard Burger in Albany, New York. Come on down to Burrito Burrito and Burrito Burrito, your Burrito Burrito. Or hop on over to Wizard Burger for mouth-watering, loaded, dare I say beefy, vegan burgers. From Troy to Albany to your reign is Burrito Burrito and Wizard Burger. Feed the hungry with out-of-this-world, plant-based, real food, always vegan style. Visit BurritoSquared.com and WizardBurger.com to order ahead. 
Ooh, sounds yummy. But Dave, I think it's time for this week's interview. Though you may not realize it, you are definitely familiar with our next guest's work. For every album, music video, and promotional artwork piece that Weird Al has put out from off the deep end through Running With Scissors, our next guest was there as the art director. He also worked on those incredible collectible trading cards and so much more. We are very excited to welcome Doug Haverty to the podcast. How's it going, Doug? Thank you guys for having me. It's really exciting. Yeah, we, we've been wanting to talk to you. I'm glad we were finally able to make that happen. Yeah. So I'm curious, Doug, uh, just to start off, uh, can you give us a little background? What exactly is the role of an art director? Well, it, it's a it's an odd term that means different things in different industries. Like in the television industry, an art director would be in charge of all the visuals, you know, like the set design and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, in music, um deals primarily with the uh, direction of all the visuals. So um, in my case, when I was working at the label, um, when I was art directing something, I chose the photographer, the studio, the location, came up with concept of what the album cover could look like, um, and then you know ran all this by artist and management so that everyone was on the same page. And then I would choose, either I would design it or I'd choose an outside uh, design firm to do it and then work with them hmm. and mold and shape what we what we come up with. I'd be given a budget and uh, I had to work within that budget. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. It was all visual. So that would be, um, you know, we'd, we'd do a photo shoot and then um, I would look through the whole photo shoot, edit the uh, pictures that I liked and do some mock-ups of covers. And then we, from that, we would say, okay, well, you know what? This could be the album cover. This could be the first single. This could be the second single. This could be the poster. This could be a flat. This could be um, a banner ad, um, stuff like that. So we'd figure out kind of like the whole campaign. I was also in charge of the music videos. Now that doesn't always happen at every label. Sometimes they have someone who's just in charge of music videos. That's all they do. Hmm. But I was sort of, in charge of all visuals. Wow. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so did you yeah. did you work directly for Scotty Brothers or were you like a contractor? Yes. Okay. So you worked with them? Yes, I was on I was on staff at Scotty Brothers. Oh, very cool. How did your career take you to be a an art director? Um, well, I started doing graphics uh in college. Um I was the graphic designer for um the student body office like so if we had a a concert with a group or a speaker or a comedian or somebody was coming to the the school i would make the flyers so that's how i got started Mm. and i just sort of always did that and uh prior to working at scotty brothers i worked at a and m records for uh 13 years and uh that was uh like being at camelot it was just a wonderful experience. I, I've always collected records. I was the person who skipped lunch, saved their lunch money so they could buy a record <laughs> at the end of the week. I'd ride my bike to the store, I'd buy a record. Wow. I stored all my records by label. I was very anal, <laughs> like Al. <laughs> if an artist jumped labels, that I I put them in two different sections because I had them in catalog <laughs> order in by label. But, um, yeah. So, uh, imagine that kid getting to work at a record company and working for Herb Albert. That's exactly who a collector would want to work at a record label. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, well, and the label was filled with people like that. So, I mean, all these people, there were like 250 people there on the A&M lot, which used to be the old Charlie Chaplin movie studio. We're all like that. You know, we all love music. We we love artists. We, you know, we love going to concerts. Um, we, it was hard to get people to leave, to go home, you know? So, uh, and, and Herb Albert was just great. You know, he created a label that was what he called artist-oriented. So uh, the artist was always involved in all the decisions. They had control of what, was put out and he didn't want to have any artists do something that wasn't organic to their own 
talents. Hmm. Like in the 70s, everyone was putting out disco albums. And he said, no, don't put out disco album. You're not a disco artist. You do your own thing. We'll, we'll find an audience for the music you make. So uh, I worked there for 13 years. And my boss, uh, Chuck Gullo, uh, was offered the presidency of uh, Scotty Brothers Records. A&M had been sold to Polygram, and he invited me to come with him and and say uh, and, be, and be his uh, vice president of creative services. And he said, you know, I've known lots of creative people through all kinds of labels, and you're the one I want. Wow. So, like, how can you say no to that? Yeah. Wow. So that's how I that's that's how I I uh, landed at Scotty Brothers. Yeah. And when was this? When did you end up at Scotty Brothers? I think that was 1991. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I was already a Weird Al fan. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, that was my. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. That's my um, next question. When, when, when he, I had a um, a friend that, that worked at Scotty Brothers, and we would trade records all the time. So whenever there was a new Al album, I uh, I got it. Wow. That's so cool. That that yeah, I was going to ask that too. You know, before you started working at A and M, and then eventually Scotty Brothers, were you doing design for artists that you were already collecting? No, that that didn't really start until Scotty Brothers. When I was working at A&M, I worked in different departments, and um, I started in the international department, and that was run by David Hubert, who was a classical conductor. Hmm. Do you remember uh, Mason Williams' Classical Gas? Yeah. He brought that to A&M. Wow. So this guy was, um, he was a conductor, an orchestra conductor, and he was running the international department. And so he sat us all down. He said, so I, this is where I come from. I'm a conductor. I know how to play every instrument. So when I talk to a cellist and I tell him what I want, he understands what I'm saying. So I want you all, meaning us staff, to learn every job so that when you run the department, you'll know what to say to everybody. So like every six months, we all switch jobs. So sometimes I would be doing production, sometimes I'd do publicity, sometimes merchandising, sometimes legal contracts, tour management, wow. all this kind of stuff. And and uh, it was great. It was just a great training ground. That just sounds like an absolutely incredible opportunity. That is just, yeah. that doesn't happen much, I would have to assume. No, it doesn't. He had a very unique philosophy and uh, he was good friends with Herb Albert. So he said, yeah, that sounds good. So how long after you joined Scotty Brothers did you start working with Weird Al? Um, I think the first thing we did was um, Off the Deep End. That was my first experience with Al. Okay. And in what way were you involved with the Off the Deep End album? Well, um, I was working with Al and his manager, Jay, on um, creating the album and the entire package and the campaign. Oh, wow. So... Oh, wow. Um, you know, we, we talked about, uh, we had a strategy meeting first, and he said, I, I want to do a complete parody of the cover. And um, he said, only I'm going to be swimming instead <laughs> of the baby. <laughs> and I, right. don't, I don't know what yet I, I want to be swimming for. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll put in different things and decide what that is. You know, is it food? Is it money? What is it? Um, so we actually uh, arranged an underwater photo shoot at the exact same pool where the wow. Nevermind album was. Oh, wow. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> He's very thorough, you know, in, in his um, replicating of the original art. And, you know, there was a title treatment that they did. Um, for Nevermind, where it looked kind of like wavy and movie. Right, and you're yeah. trying to figure out how they did that. And so I finally said, you know what? I'm just going to call them. So I called the <laughs> label and I told him what we were doing. And he said, oh, that is so cool. We'll do it for you. Oh. So, the title? <laughs> so they just did it for us because they were Weird Al fans too. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and we did. We did several mock-ups. Um, uh, where he's swimming and uh, we put different things on the fish hook. Wow. Do you remember what some of those other objects were? That were well, I remember the, the, the closest contender was a dollar bill. 
Okay. But there were okay, many yeah. different many different colors of pastry. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and Al made all the, the final decisions. Yeah. He's very, very hands-on. He knows exactly what he wants. And um, if you nail it, then he's happy as a clam. <laughs> were you actually there at the photo shoot? I was not at that photo shoot at the pool. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> I think I was at a, a photo shoot for publicity pictures with the band and where we shot all the different uh, um, articles that could be on the fish hook. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And then, of course, you, I, I, I suppose you've heard that uh, the video that we did, um, we filmed in the exact same soundstage where Nirvana filmed, we had the same extras. We had the same set. We even had the same caterer. Wow. wow. (laughs) How did that come up? Was that, that's how deep, that's how deep the authenticity goes. Was there any connection between (laughs) getting the, the title treatment and booking that set and the, you know, all those exact replicas? No, there were. Yeah. The, cause, um, the production company that was the uh, was doing the video uh, located the set. Well, I didn't. I didn't have to do that. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's so amazing, though. But I and I was <laughs> I was there on that video shoot, and that was just a ton of fun. Wow, <laughs> I've got so many questions about off the deep end, and Dave, I, I don't want to preempt you on anything. I know it's your favorite album, so. <laughs> Uh, Dave, why don't you? Oh, <laughs> why don't you start, and then I'll <laughs> I'll pick up the pieces if if there's anything else. Yeah, I mean it's no secret to listeners of our podcast that Off the Deep End is my favorite album. So I'm just thrilled to hear that I'm talking to somebody who actually worked on the album. You know, did the art direction on it, and the cover is just iconic. I know we uh, at some point we were ranking album covers, and I really fought hard for that one to be up at the at the, <laughs> the top, top of the, the list. <laughs> In in general, I mean, you just didn't do the cover. You did everything. Like when you open up the CD, it's got the liner notes, and you were involved in all of that. Yeah, the underwater theme yeah. that goes through that as well. Wow, that's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that and was done of- with uh, Command A Studios, and so you know, I sat down with them and said, "Okay, we want to keep this running to the whole thing." And and uh, you know. Al is very meticulous about every word that goes in every album on every page. Hmm. He scrutinizes everything. Where some artists just say, ah, that's fine. They don't even look. <laughs> they trust it. Al's just like, no, you know, this is my time capsule. I want it just right. Now, for something like that, does Al give you uh, a guidance as to here's what I have in my mind and then and then you have to take it and put it out on paper or I guess paper at the time, right? Or maybe it was digital, I don't know. But you have to put it out for him to look at or is it something that he basically says, well, why don't you come up with some ideas and uh, I'll pick what I like the best? Yes, that's kind of the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, you know, we put all the elements together you know, the pictures of him underwater with the different uh, articles he was chasing and uh, did mock-ups, did probably about 18 different mock-ups. And he, we printed those out. He took them home and studied them and studied them and said, can we move this here? Can we, can we slide <laughs> this over this way? And <laughs> could that be a little bit bigger? So he was mostly uh, focused on the cover. Yeah. The, the rest of the package he saw. And, and in those days, we had to, um, we were working digitally, but we didn't have the uh, internet and PDFs and stuff like that. So um, we had to make printouts and have a messenger to him. Oh, so wow. for him to go over. Oh, wow. <laughs> he, would, he would mark them up and we'd fix them and uh, go a couple of rounds like that. Wow. And he was very involved, as was Jay's manager and all that. They had to sign off. And then we do mock-ups of posters. We have different size posters and uh, flats. I don't know if you know what a flat is. It's leftover from the days of vinyl. All this, all the record stores had all this area that was ready for 12 by 12. Yep. Right. So we weren't making 12 by 12 then. So we made flats, which was just a 12 by 12 piece of cardboard. And people would use those to 
you know, there is kind of thick, so you could stack them up. You could make uh, in-store displays with them. You could, you know, paper a whole beam, you know, whatever you want. So a lot of retail right. stores like our flats. Well, I mean, that's a good segue into something I wanted to ask you, is that when you're doing this kind of designing, obviously, you know, a CD and a, a piece of like an LP of vinyl, they're roughly the same shape and they're just, you know, a different scale. But when you're adding something in like a cassette, you know, how does that, you know, which is obviously not square as like a CD or vinyl is or, or LP is, LP cover is, how does that kind of fit into your whole um, scheme of how you lay things out and, and, you know, what kind of decisions do you need to make, you know, when you're designing something, let's say like the off the deep end um, album, you know, how to make sure it fits both in a CD format and in a cassette format and blown up to a big poster size. Yeah. You have to take all of those things into consideration. And because when we released off the deep end, we were also making CD long boxes. Do you remember those? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. I, those are very highly collectible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was a little bit frustrating when you're working with a budget, you know, it's like, okay, I have to design a long box Four, you know, there's four sides in the top and the bottom that <laughs> have to make film for all that. We have to print it and it, just gets destroyed so you know it was a little frustrating but that was the nature of the beast that's that's how that's what retail wanted that's what sold the product you know so we had to do it so basically the the um long box the tall box was similar to the front of the cassette and we had to make cassettes too in those days right and al sold a lot of cassettes a lot of his sales were on cassette because hmm. you were young kids buying buying his stuff and they had cassette players walkmans remember that <laughs> what would you say <laughs> at least you know during this time when cassettes were still big what was the gold standard uh art shape was it the square cd art or was it the rectangle cassette art well the the main guy for every release was the cd square okay so like if we were doing any advertising we sold this, you know, we showed the CD square. So anything else that we made, like the, the long box or the cassette, you know, that was like a secondary thing. So the, we would design for the square. Got it. Okay. And so you mentioned that you were also involved when it came to singles, and there were actually five singles on the Off the Deep End album. Were you involved with all of those? Yep. Everyone. Wow. So, I mean, obviously, wow. Smells Like Nirvana, everyone knows you don't love me anymore. Yeah. That was, you know, promo only. Uh, Taco Grande didn't really get a huge release, but then we had two: the white stuff and I can't watch this, which actually never got released. Do you know anything about the background behind that? Um, I know that I would I would get an order, you know, like from the promotion department or the mar the marketing department or the sales department. Okay, get a single ready for this. Get a single ready for this, and then they just watch and see what the reaction was at radio. And so we had to we had to get all that ready so that at a moment's notice they could just put it in production and a lot of times uh we would just do a single that went to radio only. Right. But yes, all of that had to, was all under my jurisdiction. Now, now I know for, you know, I can't watch this and the white stuff, Taco Grande, it's just the disc um that has ever been, you know, out there? Was there CD art, backing art, case art, that kind of stuff for those, or were those just the disc art? Um, a lot of times it was just the disc if we were just sending it to radio. Yeah, okay. You know, because we would just put it in a clear jewel case. Yeah. Um, if it was going to be a commercial release, then sometimes we would actually make a jewel case, you know, or a, a wallet pee to pocket you know um it would vary from, <laughs> from project to project yeah. but um most of the time we did uh, a regular jewel case release for a single because it was um the easiest for the djs to find because if you just put a disc right. in an envelope and send it out then it's like where is it i don't know you know and they have everything racked on a shelf so if it's in a jewel case and there's a spine that has the name of the song and the artist that's easy to read, this could be easier for them to find. 
because the, inevitably what happened is the promotion department would call the station and say, so did you get the new Weird Al single? I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't see it. I can't find it. You know, okay, let me send you another one. So that was the, the game. Whereas mm, okay. if you put it in a jewel case and it had a spine, it was easy for them to find. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, I'm curious, like for something like um, when you're designing, well, uh, even for the albums, if you're designing like something for Off the Deep End, uh, that's released as not just in the U.S., but, you know, places like Canada and overseas. Are you involved in the artwork of anything that's outside of the U.S., or are you strictly working just on stuff that's released in the U.S.? Well, um, it varies from label to label and artist to artist because different artists have different contracts. Some people are distributed by different uh, labels in different parts of the world. Um, but in the situation of Al and our foreign affiliates, um, we would send them a set of duplicate film and masters. So it was absolutely just like ours. Hmm. And this was layered film so they could strip in their own legal lines, their own selection numbers and stuff like that. But part of the contract was they had to use our art. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And every once in a while, somebody would say, uh, well, we want to do a single of this. So they maybe they'd send a mock-up or they would alter something that we did and just change the single. But that was pretty rare. So I believe with Off the Deep End, you know, right when it came out in 92, there was actually a vinyl release in the Netherlands. Do you remember the decision behind that? No, but I know that there was a manufacturing center in Holland mm-hmm. and they they manufactured LPs and CDs there and distributed it throughout Europe. Hmm. So the manufacturing center was in Holland and like almost everything said that you know, on the, on the little legal lines there, but it wasn't exclusively for Holland. Okay. You know, like, uh, Polygram, uh, CBS, uh, BMG, they all had manufacturing centers, uh, a centralized, centralized manufacturing center. And they were usually in Holland. Hmm. So if you saw one that said Holland on it, it may not have been strictly for Holland that they might've had that in Belgium and France and Spain and, I'm curious on the, the um, that release. It was kind of weird because it was until vinyl became more popular. It was the last, I guess, official Weird Al vinyl release. Um, but what's really weird about it um, is the picture quality is, is very poor. It almost looks like a bootleg when you're looking at it. Would there be instances like that where, you know, maybe you guys didn't get to approve the final or you didn't know they had, you know, a poor printing done of it until after the fact? Um, well, having worked at A&M International for 13 years, I saw all kinds of inferior reproductions. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, you know, since people would send us samples and say, oh, my God, what did they print this on? Tissue paper? I mean, the, the cardboard was thin, it was bent, it was, and the colors were muted. So it was um, it was a constant source of frustration. We were always thrilled by usually anything that got done in Japan because yeah. their quality was excellent. Oh, yeah. I don't know what happened with the Off the Deep End uh, vinyl release. I suspect they were sent CD film and just enlarged it. Okay. And you know when you enlarge it, the copy the the, the quality suffers. And who knows, I don't know what kind of approval process that went through. If it, if they sent an actual print copy to to us, to the headquarters, and they signed off, I don't know. Or if they maybe they just said, hey, we're going to put this out. We're going to use your film. And I think probably somebody just said, okay. Doug, <laughs> <Right. laughs> I have a copy of Off the Deep End on cassette from Peru. and And it is probably... Other than, you know, the, the little piece of where they took the actual cover, the, the whole 
album layout and design is probably one of the most um, unintentionally hysterical things I've ever seen <laughs> because there are misspellings of Weird Al's names of song titles all over it. So, I mean, just I, I understand your frustration of seeing something that you worked hard on and then seeing it come back in an inferior, poor quality. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> and you just have to know that we sent them film of you know of our release of our cassette right and they just took it upon themselves to probably use the film for the cover and then they just relayed out everything somebody somebody's secretary you know in the sales department (laughs) probably just (laughs) so i'm uh curious about now the uh the singles uh that were actually released off of off the deep end the smells like nirvana and the you don't love me anymore what can you tell us about the cover of the you don't love me anymore single do you remember designing you know what went to the design of that cover it's uh it's for people who haven't seen it it's a picture it looks like it's almost a still from the music video of weird al and uh, jim west with really long hair playing the guitar and it's in black and white like the video was. Yeah. Um, typically what I would do is when we were shooting a video, I'd hire a still photographer to be on the set. And so that's what I did for that. And um, ironically, that video was shot at A&M. So it was like hmm. going back to my old stomping ground. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, that's, that's what we did. You know, and I would, I would, typically do that we'd either use those pictures for publicity or um to use on uh, product oh the other thing i was going to say about you don't you don't love me anymore you know that was filmed at a and m and um it was a, a kind of a parody of a group on a and m called extreme which uh was a uh, pretty much a heavy metal band and they had um one soft ballad that they did and and it was their biggest hit so here's this <laughs> headbanger band and uh, on the lark they did a soft ballad and that's the one uh, that became a huge hit and that's that's how um, jim's hair is fashioned to look like nuno betancourt from extreme so that's that's what that's what that's about now there's kind of this controversy in the music video for you don't love me anymore where someone on set put like a condom on a mic stand or something like that uh do you remember that situation i do not yeah i mean it's possible that it happened a crew member or something but so after you worked on off the deep end uh what was your next project with weird al did you work on the food album yes Yes. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, put we at the label wanted a Weird Al album every year. You know, it's like, okay, you got another one? You got another, we, we want another one. <laughs> but Al was, you know, very particular about um, when he released something. It wasn't anything that uh, was organically planned. Like, oh, I have to have an album out in September. No. It was like when the right song comes along for me to parody, then I'll put the album out. And so he'd go into the studio and record the other tracks. So they'd have, he'd have a bunch of tracks ready mm-hmm. and maybe he'd do a couple of parodies, but he was always waiting for the big one. Right. Um, and then we would put something out. So um, it, it, I, th- I think we, we were ready for another album and he did, that song hadn't come along. So that's when the idea came up to do the food album because so many of his songs deal with food. And I think (laughs) his fan base all love all those food songs. So we thought, Hey, let's just put the food album out. And then those, those kids that like all the food songs, they'll have them all together. Cause you know, this was before iPods and stuff, you know, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll make the magic for the kids. (laughs) Now, we had on the podcast uh, a while back, Mr. Lawrence, who did the artwork for the, the food album. Do you remember uh, working with Mr. Lawrence at all? And do you remember who reached out to uh, work with him? It was Al. Um, and, and I'm sure Al would be the first to tell you this, too. Al was not 
um, enamored of the idea of putting out the food out. Right. He did it. He allowed it to happen reluctantly. Right. And uh, but he was aware of Doug Lawrence, and he said, "Oh, if we have to do this, maybe we can get Doug to do it." <laughs> Doug Lawrence. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know if you guys know L.A. or not, but um, uh, at the time I was living in Burbank near the Burbank Studios, and so was Doug. So uh, I went and picked up the art at his apartment, which was like two blocks from my house. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was that was the extent of of my dealing with Doug. You know, he de- he delivered this uh, illustration that Al had seen mm-hmm. and approved. So it was OK, let's just go for it. We <laughs> we got the cover. And then besides you know, the, the cover or the rest of the artwork on the album, was that you or was that uh, designed by Doug Lawrence as well? Well, um, some of it was designed by him and some of it was just taken from the illustration because it was a large illustration. Right. So we just used portions of it on different areas. And the CD artwork itself, uh, I, was that you? Yes, I art directed that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, there's kind of a rumor out there that you know the drawing of this you know, monster eating Al and all that's left are his bones was sort of a kind of a, a take on, you know, the record label, maybe picking, picking clean Al's discography by forcing this compilation. Do you remember any conversations about that or uh, is there any truth to that? Um, I was not privy to any conversations that Al had with Doug Lawrence, right. but um that was sort of the general feeling that we got. Yeah. He, he was not in favor of this album. So, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, if, if you're going to, you know, make me do this and sacrifice, then I'll be the sacrificial pig with the apple in my mouth. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, one thing that Doug Lawrence mentioned in our interview with him was that he did not know what happened to the original artwork that he had. I guess he handed it off to you, but after that point, he had never seen it again. Do you know the current location of the food (laughs) album artwork that was done by Doug Lawrence? Um, I suspect that it is in the archives you know, like anything that we anything we used for album art was sent to Iron Mountain Storage, and then uh, Pearson bought All American Communications, was the parent company of Scotty Brothers, and absorbed all that. Now, I think all the Al stuff was then sent to Al's new label because hmm. they re they re released a lot of stuff. So, right. I, I I don't know. You know, we we were. Uh, when we got bought, it was sort of like, bye-bye. We'll <laughs> <laughs> take it from here. Well, so the next album I believe you worked on would have been Alapalooza? Yes. That was a lot of fun. Now, Alapalooza's artwork is, you know, it's very memorable, but there's also, you know, in the collector community, we're very aware that it was originally with a red background and then it was changed to yellow background. Can you shed some light on that whole situation? Um. I think it had to do with the movie studio. Okay. That the that the first one was too close to um, the actual movie poster, so we had to change it. Hmm. And, you know, Jay and Al were very, very uh, particular about getting anything signed off. You know, they didn't want any, they didn't want any ruffled tail feathers. So if a studio said, eh, that's too close to what we have, can you alter it? Then we did. Hmm. So... Just how Al was always so honorable when he was asking people if he could do a parody of their song. You know, he always wanted their approval, even though he didn't need it. So I guess the movie studio didn't make that request until after it was already published? Yeah. If I remember, I don't remember the exact sequence of events. Hmm. And, you know, when something like that happens, then it's sort of like, okay, well, you know, we've already got. 500,000 copies out there, right. you know, so <laughs> right. we, can, we can phase in this new look. Um, but I do remember that uh, uh, I had that caricature drawn and um, showed it to uh, Jay and Al and they just, oh, that's it. It's nailed. That's it. That's perfect. <laughs> it really is great. <laughs> yeah. I went to his name was uh, David Westwood, and he he specialized in sort of doing silhouette art. 
he did a lot of logos and stuff. So <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Now, inside of the in the liner notes for the Alapalooza album, there is a, there is a, another dinosaur of Weird Al. Uh, do you know the story behind that dinosaur on the inside? Um, was that from the claymation video? I can't remember. Uh, you know, we were just given that picture, so I, I don't okay. remember yeah. the genesis of it. It's the dinosaur wearing the Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Right, the dinosaur with the curly hair, the glasses, and the Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, Hawaiian shirt, yeah. <laughs> and then there is, of course, some other pictures of Weird Al in there where he's uh, he's making all these goofy poses, and one where it looks like he's almost inside of like a dryer or something, and his face <laughs> is all distorted. <laughs> yeah, that, that was early days of Photoshop. Like, look what we can do. We can twirl this. Oh, fun. <laughs> Well, we need to stop the interview right there, but don't you worry, we'll be back next week with even more from the great Doug Haverty. Thank you so much to Doug for joining us. We learned so much amazing, pretty stinking majestic information chatting with Doug. I cannot wait for everyone to hear more of our incredible interview next week. Remember last week when we were calling David Grant, Dave Grant? Yeah, of course. Why was that again? Oh, I have no idea. I never really pay attention to our show. You never pay attention to our show? Oh, I highly doubt that. Well, I highly doubt that you highly doubt that. All right, here. Let me quiz you on things only a Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast superfan would know. Sure, I mean, I'll get them all wrong. I guarantee it. What book? What book did David Grant write? The Ruins of Our Past under the pseudonym Sebastian Shepard. Now available on Amazon.com and WolfandWool.com. Wow. Uh, okay. How about... Name... Name the comedy rap icon who you will never see in the same room as David Grant? Easy, that's MC Chalkskin. And you said you would get them wrong. Didn't I? Anyway, head on over to wolfandwool.com and follow at SEB underscore SHEP on TikTok. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Discover Darwin, promoting tourism in Darwin, Minnesota. Not only is historic Darwin, Minnesota a beautiful, it's also a tank. Darwin, Minnesota is home to a giant metal tank of water that says Darwin on it. The fresh water housed in the big metal tank is used by residents to brush their teeth, wash their hands, rinse their toes, splash their uvulas, wet their elbows, douse their knees, spritz their armpit hair, and more. So next time your uvula isn't feeling quite moist enough, consider a visit to Darwin, Minnesota on your next expedition. Discover Darwin more than just a twine ball. And after you visit Darwin, Minnesota, be sure to visit discoverdarwin.biz. Each week, we're able to bring you our podcast absolutely free thanks to our sponsors, Burrito Burrito, Discover Darwin, Jackson Scoggins, and David Grant at wolfandwool.com. And thank you to our amazing close personal friend, Patreon supporters, Frank from the Bank, Jake, Jared, Javier, UH Jeff, Kenneth, Scott, Zeb, Adriana, Allison, and Blair. And thanks to the two newest members to our Patreon family, Dave and Brad, and also everyone else in our Pretty Stick and Majestic Patreon family. If you enjoy our family-friendly weekly Weird Al podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 2000inch or by picking up some Pretty Stick and Majestic official Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast merchandise, such as our brand new line of We Hate Intern Frank merchandise over at shop.2000inch.com. Grab your copies of Black and White and Weird All Over and check out our special bonus episode book series where author John Bermuda Schwartz walks us through the book page by page and picture by picture. Remember, our Patreon family get to hear... All bonus episodes early, and they're the only ones who get to hear these secret episodes. And our Patreon family members at $5 and above are entered into our final 2021 raffle. All right, Bermuda, drum roll, please. Congratulations to December raffle winner, Richard Green. He wins an official Dave and Ethan's 2000 Inch Weird Al podcast 
t-shirt, and we recommend the We Hate Intern Frank t-shirt, or any of the others from our merchandise shop over at shop.2000inch.com. If you want to check out all the great perks of being in our Patreon family, be sure to join this year at patreon.com slash 2000inch. Or your other option is you can just continue being a little cheapskate. We love hearing from all of our listeners, even the cheapskates. So join our Facebook community and post about Weird Al by visiting group.2000inch.com. And we also love it when we receive voicemail via our official 27-hour-a-day podcast hotline, 347 Spatula. Put it in your phone on speed dial. You might even hear your message in a future episode. For everything about our podcast, including incredible past episodes and guests, be sure to visit weirdalpodcast.com or 2000inch.com. And keep up on new episodes, podcast news, and events by following at 2000inch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you for subscribing and leaving awesome reviews on your favorite podcast apps. You never know what Weird Al-related news the new year will bring, so make sure you're subscribed so you get our breaking headline news alerts as soon as they drop. Thank you once again to our guest, Doug Haverty, and thank you to Lee Seitz, Jeff Morris, Cheryl Northrup, and John Bermuda Schwartz. Thank you to the Grammy Award-winning Jim Kimo West for our incredible podcast theme song, and thank you to Weird Al Yankovic, as this podcast probably would not exist without him. And a big thank you to all of you, our listeners, subscribers, Patreon supporters and sponsors, and everyone else who makes our podcast possible. Yes, even the cheapskates. Thank you for choosing Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast. And until next time, remember to always gill and chill. Ethan, have you ever been to Mount Rushmore? No. Oh, I hear they have good fishing there. Okay. Uh, well... Join us next week for part two of our interview with the incredible Doug Haverty. That was Dave and Ethan's 2008 Weird Al podcast, episode 140. Our podcast is genius in France. figure out how they did that i finally said you know what i'm just gonna call him so i called the label and i told him what we were doing and he said oh that is so cool we'll do it for you they just did it for us because they were weird l fans too